Good morning. Uh, we're going to start a little differently, uh, a little reward for those who have got up early to be here. We're going to start with a quiz. Okay, so you up for that? Yeah. You up for that? Yeah. Um, a little bit of excitement, not too much, a few ripples. What we're to do um, is uh, look at the screen. Uh, there are going to be three news headlines appearing on the screen. If you can't quite make them out, I'm going to read them to you as well. And what I want you to do is guess whether these are fake news or genuine news headlines. Here's the first one. Army vehicle disappears. Uh, Really, uh, first paragraph. Uh, An Australian army vehicle worth $74,000 has gone missing after being painted with camouflage. Okay, hands up if you think that is fake news. Hands up if you think it is genuine news. Hands up if you really couldn't care less. (laughs) Uh, Okay, Um, I'll tell you at the end uh, whether it's fake or real. Here's the second one, uh, taken from the Daily Mail. Terror as gigantic Muslim spiders bring deadly Ebola to UK... And the Sharia law arachnids are also set to cause the worst winter for 50 years, and you're paying for it. (laughs) Hands up if you think that is fake news. (laughs) Hands up if you think it's genuine. Hands up if you really couldn't care less. Okay, here's the third one. uh, Taken, nothing against the mail here, but from the mail online. Man gets shock of his life when he buys two toy poodles for $150 only to be told by a vet that they are actually giant rodents pumped up with steroids to look like dogs. Hands up if you think that's fake news. Hands up if you think it's true. Okay, well, here we go. All three are complete fabrications. All of them are fake news. But the problem is there's so much fake news around today, it can be very hard to know what is true, what is real, what is genuine anymore. So a bit more audience participation as you're really warmed up now. How would you go about, some of you have really got this abysmally wrong, but how would you try and go about telling whether or not a news headline is the genuine article? How would you try and work it out? Any, any, which paper is it? Sorry, I, I didn't really want to go there, but, um, Ask the church leader. <laughs> um, yeah, so is it corroborated by others? Is it consistent with, with other stuff out there? Who wrote it? Um, can that person be trusted? Uh, maybe look at the origins, the source of the story. Does it sound utterly ridiculous? Is it plausible? Yeah, that... that. <laughs> Now, some of you are thinking, where on earth is he going with all this? But what I want to talk about this morning is how to spot a genuine, real, authentic Christian. And to do that, I want to go back to the origins of the church in the book of Acts. I want us to go back to some of the source material. And I want to see what it has to show us about authentic, original, real, consistent Christianity. And I'll tell you why I think this is incredibly important. Over the years, I've talked to a whole load of people who actually base to some degree their non-belief on their understanding that they used to be a Christian. It's like they've tried it, it didn't work, 
and so it can't be real. But to people who say, look, I used to be a Christian, I would humbly and gently push back against that statement and just want to probe a bit, ask the question, were you really a Christian? Was your experience of Christianity genuine? And all of those people in the room who right now are sitting there thinking, well, no, I am a Christian right now, really without wishing to trigger a crisis of faith, please hear that, I don't want to do that, I do think it's healthy every now and again to examine whether or not our faith is real, whether or not our faith is genuine. Is it consistent with what we think or say we believe? And so to help you out, I want to show you three signs of real, genuine Christianity. They're not the only signs. Um, There are loads of other things we could look at, but I just want to draw three signs out of a passage in Acts. If you want to follow along, I'm going to be basing all of this in Acts chapter 4, and we're going to pick it up in verse 23. As soon as they were freed, Peter and John, two of the leaders in the first church, returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. When they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. O sovereign Lord, they prayed, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. You spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, saying, why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. In fact, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word." Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After this prayer, the meeting place shook and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, and so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi. He came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. Now, there's a tremendous amount going on in this passage. I could preach an entire series of sermons on this passage, each sermon with multiple points. What I simply want to do today, though, is home in on three of the characteristics that you would expect to see in your life over time if your faith is real, if your faith is genuine. Here's the first one. You serve God consistently, especially in suffering. 
You serve God consistently, especially in suffering. Now, I don't know if you spotted this, but chapter 4 of Acts sees a pretty dramatic change. Because in the first three chapters, chapters 1, 2, and 3, everything is going remarkably well. First ever sermon, 2,000 people believed there and then. In the second sermon, a further 3,000 people believed in that moment. They go from strength to strength. They have the favor of all of the people. But see verse 23 here. There's a very sinister word that appears. As soon as they were freed, that's the word, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. Now, if you were around last time, you'll hopefully remember what Rich shared, that Peter and John had been arrested immediately prior to the passage I read, and they'd been threatened. They're told by the authorities, you must not preach about Jesus anymore or else. In other words, starting here in chapter 4, the Christians know that some of them are going to suffer Some of them are going to be locked up in prison. Some of them are even going to die if they're committed to telling other people the good news about Jesus. This is the first time we see the first church facing suffering. And I think their response is noteworthy. Now, if you'll forgive me for going off on a brief tangent, this kind of reminds me of the example of Job way back in the Old Testament. If you're not familiar with the story, Job is this guy who loses almost everything. He loses all of his money. He loses most of his family. He loses most of his health. And throughout the whole story, all Job does is argue with God and kind of shake his fist and yell and cry and question, why? Why is this happening? It's unjust. It's unfair. Why? And as you're reading the story, you're thinking, Job's not doing very well here. But then right at the end of the story, God shows up and vindicates Job and says, you've done a phenomenal job, well done. It's like God affirms him and rewards him and criticizes, castigates his friends for having dared to criticize him. Now what's that all about? Well, I think the key to understanding that story, the the key to understanding the whole book of Job is to go to the very beginning of the story where God is in conversation with Satan. God says, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth. It's like God's proud of him. He's saying, what a wonderful example of somebody who loves me and follows me and serves him. Look at him. He's the, the, the prime example of faithfulness to me. But Satan's having none of it. He accuses Job saying, look, Job's not actually serving you, God, for your sake. He's serving himself and using you. What he's really about is all the benefits not about loving and serving you. Look, if suffering, if pain, if injustice was to come into his life, then you'll see what he's really like. Which is why, right at the end, in spite of all of Job's ranting and raving, God still vindicates, honors, and blesses him. Do you know why? Because all through the book, Job is ranting and raving to God. He's arguing with God, which means the suffering didn't ultimately drive him away from God. It intensified his prayer life. It drove him toward God. You know, Satan is right in this instance, though he was wrong about Job. 
But Satan is right in that true believers, people with genuine faith, do not serve God just for what they're getting out of it. And often it takes times of suffering and difficulty and challenge to test whether you got into that relationship with God primarily to get God to serve you or whether you genuinely want to serve him out of love and gratitude for all he is and all he's done. So in a way, you can't fully tell whether your faith is genuine if life is only ever going okay. Now bearing all of that in mind, look again at these people here in Acts 4. They know that some of them are going to suffer, some of them are going to die. So what do they say? Well, verse 24, when they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. Like with Job, instead of walking away from God, they go toward God and they pray. Now, do you notice how they don't pray? for any of the things that perhaps we would have been tempted to pray for. They don't pray for a change in their circumstances. They don't pray for protection even. Don't pray for vengeance to come on all of these people, all of their enemies. All they pray for, you can see it down in verse 29, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. In other words, what they're saying is, just give us courage. Help us to keep going. As we keep going, would you continue to, in some way, change other people's lives through us? Now look, just to balance this, I do need to say there's nothing wrong with praying for your needs. I mean, Jesus put it right in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, didn't he? Give us this day our daily bread. So it can't be wrong to bring our specific individual requests to God. But in this case, they don't go there. Do you know why? I think it's because if you're in a genuine relationship with God, it is not simply or even primarily, all about just getting your needs met. Over the years, I've had people come to me from time to time and say, look, Jonathan, I was a Christian, but then God let all of these awful things happen to me. And in the end, I just gave up. And I said, look, I cannot believe in a God who would allow these things to happen to me the end of the day that's a sign they weren't serving God for him they were serving God for themselves and when God isn't delivering in the ways they want then they're not so interested in the relationship anymore now if you're sitting there thinking well look great I I got up extra early to hear this I mean Jonathan's being uh, unusually harsh with us today I want you to just to flip this round. Think of yourself for a moment. This might be a stretch of imagination for some of you, but I want you to imagine that you were incredibly wealthy, very, very rich. You were in the pinnacle of health. You were incredibly athletic, 
and very, very well connected. You knew everyone there was to know. And you had a friend. And you and your friend did everything together. You went places, holidayed all the time, had all manner of fun together. And then imagine that you lost all of your wealth. You lost all of your money, hit some health issues, no longer the pinnacle of athleticism, and you lost all of your connections. And your friend dropped you straight away, unfriended you on Facebook, stopped following you on Twitter, didn't respond to any of your texts, never saw them ever again. What would you say? I think you'd probably conclude they didn't really love me. They were just after the benefits. And you'd probably be slightly indignant, wouldn't you? And you'd have every right. So why do you think it would be any different with God? How can you say, well, you know, if God lets these bad things come into my life, if it's not paying off any more to serve God, why should I hang on in there? Why should I bother with him? I mean, if people treated you like that, you would be indignant. And you'd be right. And so my appeal to you would be, please don't treat God like that. First mark of a real Christian is you serve God consistently for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. You get to know God deliberately. You get to know God deliberately, intentionally. John 17, verse 3 says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To know about God is one thing. To know God, really know him, that's what makes you a real Christian. At the end of the day, it's all about having a personal relationship. I'm going to try and break that down for you. Look at the personal element, then home in on the relationship bit. First of all, it means to have a personal relationship with God. Now, I'm struggling a bit here, not quite sure how to define this, but I can try and describe it to you. Because I've had two categories of people who sometimes I've observed, sometimes I've chatted with. One category is people who were raised in a Christian family. As a result, they felt they believed, they thought they had a a certain amount of faith, But when they left home, perhaps went off to college or got a job, moved away for whatever reason, they ended up just totally disinterested in Christianity. They wanted nothing to do with it. It all suddenly felt unreal to them. It's one category of people. Another category is people who come into contact with a group of Christians. They're involved with them and they feel like, I really believe. I'm a Christian as well. I feel this. I love Jesus, but then again, for whatever reason, that they move somewhere else, so away from that group of Christian friends, and over time, it just kind of goes away. Over time, they begin to feel, well, maybe this isn't real. They end up having no interest at all. Now, what's going on in both of those examples? What, what's the explanation? Well, I think the answer is this. It's possible to have a second-hand experience of God. It's possible for a while to live off other people's enthusiasm. 
It's like they're happy and they believe in Jesus and you want to be happy. And so you kind of live off their faith and you're caught up in it for a while. But when you come away, you realize you never met God for yourself. You you never met God personally. You really didn't have an individual relationship with him. That's the problem. And it's a pretty big problem. You know, my story, my background is one of growing up in a Christian family and being dragged along to church meetings Sunday after Sunday and sitting there somewhere, nothing wrong with being in the back row, but sitting there towards the back, just being kind of bored out of my skull until one day I heard someone preaching and I'd heard the message loads of times before. I mean, it was nothing new, but suddenly it hit home. Suddenly I kind of woke up to the fact that Jesus died for me. Now, I knew Jesus died for us. I knew Jesus died for the world, but it was all very impersonal. It didn't really affect me in any way. But that day, for the first time, it hit home that Jesus died, not just for everyone else, but for me. And that he had to die for me. And he did die for me. So suddenly there was this personal connection. It wasn't just for my parents or for others around me. This was relevant for me and it demanded therefore a response from me. You know one of the things I'm praying for this morning is maybe for some of you perhaps for the first time to feel the truth, the reality, the power that Jesus died not just for us in general, but for you. Personally, for you. Absolutely for you, with you in mind. And therefore you personally have a decision to make. I'm praying that this morning, even as we move on later into worship, that this becomes personal for you and that you respond personally that's the first thing do you have a personal relationship secondly it's a personal relationship you know there are a whole lot of people who say they pray they even pray pretty regularly but when asked what they pray about they pray pretty much exclusively for their needs I mean what else are you supposed to pray for but if you pray and that's really your entire relationship with God you're just talking it's like an ongoing endless Amazon wish list. You're just asking for thing after thing. That's not a personal relationship. A relationship has to be two ways, doesn't it? I mean, do you have a personal relationship? Are you best friends with Amazon? If all you're ever doing is saying, bring me this, bring me this, bring me that, and complaining when it arrives late, if that's all you're doing, then God's sort of this divine Amazon in the sky, and it's not really ever a personal relationship. You you might think it is, It's very convenient for you, but the other party certainly doesn't think they're having a personal relationship with you. There's a guy called Eugene Peterson. He says prayer isn't really talking to God. True prayer is answering God. You know, I think that's an incredibly helpful way of putting it. I'll just think about it for a moment. How, How did you learn to talk? Well, if nobody had spoken to you first, 
you would have just grown up babbling. You'd be here today still babbling away. The only way that you knew how to talk was if somebody initiated conversation with you. Somebody talked to you first and then you responded. That's how you learned to talk. And it's exactly the same when it comes to knowing God. You see, God has spoken to us. He's revealed himself to us in his word. Again, use your imaginations. Imagine if later on in the meeting, I sat down with Steve here, and Steve poured out his life story, including the most vulnerable secrets from his life. Imagine it it just all poured out of him, all of his struggles, all the things he's most proud of, his hopes, his dreams, his ambitions, his fears. I sat there with him, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, uh, an hour goes by, still listening to to Steve, kind of telling me his story. (laughs) And then finally when Steve said, "So, so what do you think? Imagine that I opened my mouth and for the next 20 minutes I ignored everything Steve had said. I acted as if I hadn't heard a thing. I made no reference whatsoever to anything he said. I just talked about things that I need and things that I want. Now, if that's how I responded to someone who had poured out their most vulnerable secrets, if I just totally ignored them, simply listed my needs, pretended I hadn't heard a thing, that would be a bit odd, wouldn't it? That, that wouldn't be a, a two-way conversation it would be incredibly rude in fact but I do think that's how a lot of us myself included at times pray I think the reason Eugene Peterson said prayer isn't talking to God so much as it's answering God is that in the Bible God has told you his story He's revealed massive amounts of things about himself he's poured out his heart as it were And so when you open your mouth to pray, you're at least partly to be basing what you say on this. You ought to be responding to his words, responding to what he said to you. As we look at Acts 4, that's exactly what we see happening here. These people are not just talking to God, they are answering him. They have a personal relationship because look carefully what they do. They're scared, they're afraid. I mean, they wouldn't be praying for fearlessness and boldness and courage if they weren't scared. They're pouring out their heart, but look what they do. They go to the Scriptures. First of all, they say, Sovereign Lord. And then they start quoting a passage from the Old Testament, Psalm 2. They say, You spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, saying, Why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. The whole psalm is about the fact that even though the nations rage and people rebel, Everything is under God's control. He's sovereign. Everything is still happening according to his plan. Now, do you see what they're doing? They're pretty scared, understandably so. But they don't merely say, Lord, we're scared, zap us with courage. They don't simply say, look, I'm really anxious. Would you please fill me with inner peace? 
Now, what do they do? They, they strategically take one of the things that God has told us about himself in his word. Take one of his attributes, he's sovereign. He's wise, he's good, everything works out according to his plan. And then they respond to him on the basis of that. But they talk to him about what he has said about himself, who he says he is. And as a result, they're letting God heal their hearts with the truth of his word. And if you read on, they then remind themselves how this played out in recent history with Jesus, their friend. Verse 27 in fact, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. They're saying, oh Lord, what a dreadful thing it was that Jesus was killed. We're still struggling to get our heads around that. But we realize now that if he hadn't been crucified, we wouldn't know you like this today. We wouldn't have had our sins cleansed and forgiven. When he was dying on the cross, we never could have anticipated, never would have imagined the good things that you'd be able to bring out of it all. And so, since you are a sovereign God, wisely working everything out according to your plan, look, if it looks like we're going to start to die and bad things are going to be happening in our lives, we're going to just pause for a moment and we're going to reflect on the truth of who you are. Therefore, we're not going to be afraid of the future. See, that's what it's like to know God. That's not just abstractly looking at him as some kind of big vending machine in the sky, like I need this and I need this and I need this, and quickly. They're responding to what he said. It's a two-way communication, and it's transforming of their lives. But I think to pray like that, you have to know the Bible. You have to see God speaking to us in his word. You have to pray in answering his word. Now, do you know what's ironic about this prayer? They're praying about God. It's completely God-centered. It's not me-centered. It's God, God, God. You're this, you're this, you're this. Do you know what's ironic about this prayer? If really all you're doing is looking at yourself instead of God and your prayer life, your relationship with him is I need this, I need this, I need this. Ultimately, you're not going to get all of your needs met. But if you start by looking at God instead of your needs, then ultimately, you are going to get your needs met. It's like aim at heaven and get earth thrown in as well. Aim at the earth, you'll probably get neither. Mark's a real Christian. Christian. First of all, you serve God consistently. Secondly, you know God personally, deliberately, intentionally. Here's the third one, really quickly. You give generously. You just do. You give generously. You notice how in verse 31 it says, the Christians were filled with boldness and courage. Then the very next verse, verse 32, it describes how they start giving their money away, their possessions, their land, their property, left, right, and center. Now, don't you think there could be a connection between those two verses? I'll suggest one of the main reasons why perhaps we don't give more of our money and our stuff away is in our heart of hearts we're scared 
It's not so much stinginess. It's not we're really mean or tight-fisted. I think when you look beyond that, it's actually fearfulness. But when God is real in your life, you don't look to your savings or your possessions for your ultimate security. They, they can't give you the security that you want them to give you. Only God can truly make you secure. But when God's unreal, your money is more real. Your money is your saviour. When God isn't spiritually real to you, you hold on to your money because you're scared of not having it. But when God is real to you, you have to give more of it away because you're not reliant on it. You're not scared of the consequences of not having it. One of the marks, you're a real Christian. Your faith is genuine. Is you become radically generous. Increasingly so, the more you really get to know God. Now, my time's almost gone. There's one more thing I need to say really by way of conclusion. Because there's a danger that some of you might now be fearing that you are not a genuine Christian. Or that you'll go away thinking that you have to work really hard now to try to prove that you are. But that's not what I want for any of you. See, there's something way more powerful, liberating, freeing that I want you to go away with from this story. We've seen, haven't we, three of the marks of genuine Christianity. But I want you to see the source of them. I want you to see where they actually come from. Look again at verse 31, right in the middle of the passage. This is the climax of the whole thing. After this prayer, the meeting place shook and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. There are loads of places in the Bible when there's an earthquake, when, when the earth shook, when God's presence come down. It's one of the marks in the Bible of the presence of God, the closeness of God. For example, when he comes down on Mount Sinai in the Old Testament, we're told the whole place shook. In Isaiah 6, when the presence of God comes down to the temple, we're told the threshold of the building shook. Deborah in Judges 5 sings her famous song. She goes out and she says, Oh Lord, when you marched out, the earth shook. Now these images, these pictures of the presence of God, I think they're telling us something incredibly important. Basically, you get an earthquake when something of greater substance, something of greater weight comes into contact with something that cannot bear it. For example, don't want to be rude about your weight or anything, but if any of you was to walk out onto a one-inch thick layer of ice over a pond, you would all create an ice quake. You, you, you'd go right through it. Why? Because your substance would be too great, too weighty for the ice. And the point of the earthquake is whenever God comes down, he's of such glory. He's of such greatness. He's of such weight that nothing here on earth can bear it. That's the reason why when Moses asked God, God, can I see your glory? God says, no, it'll kill you. It would effectively shake you to pieces. It would shake you apart. No, you can't see it. Why Isaiah said, look, 
I'm undone in the presence of God because suddenly I'm aware I'm unclean. It's because God's holy and we're not. It's like his holiness is too great, too profound, too weighty for us. So we'd be shaken apart by it. Now here's the question. The presence of God comes down on these Christians here in Acts. That they, they see and understand the sovereignty of God in a new way, in such a way that it, it makes them incredibly fearless, courageous and bold. But the point is, the place, the building, the room was shaken but they weren't. The place was shaken, but they actually, through this, became more unshakable. Now, how could the presence of God come down in such a way when Moses was told, you can't bear it, don't go there, it would destroy you? Why, why would the presence of God come down and it not shake them to death? I think here's the answer. In Matthew 27, when Jesus dies, there's yet another earthquake. Verse 45, at noon... Darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Then Jesus shouted out again and he released his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split apart and tombs opened. It's this a little bit at the end. I mean, don't ask me questions about this later. I haven't a clue what's going on here. But the bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. I, I, I can't even imagine what that was all about or what that looked like or then what happened to these bodies. So I've now, I've now distracted you with those questions. Block that out. That isn't the main point I want to make. Something was coming down here. Or there wouldn't have been an earthquake. But what was it? Surely it was God the Father coming down in judgment on Jesus. It was the divine justice coming down on Jesus. All the punishment that we deserve, that you deserve, came down on Jesus and he, if you like, was shaken to pieces on the cross. But then on the third day, the earth shook again. There was another earthquake. The stone on the tomb rolled away. What was going on then? Well, death was cracking. Death was being defeated. Death was being shaken to pieces. Which means that today, Jesus can come to you here in this place and say, look, I was shaken to pieces so that you could become unshakable. Effectively, I was shaken to pieces for you. I got what you deserve so that you can know the Father's love, not in a general way, but personally. That means that you are unshakable. Guilt and shame, all the things that you feel disqualify you. He says, I took that. I shouldn't bother you anymore. You're unshakable. Fear of the future, what, what lies ahead? He said, I've defeated death. I'm guaranteeing your future. You can be unshakable. You know, even though we do not know why the suffering happens to us, why it happens. And I'm not here to give you an explanation or the reasons or answer all of your questions. As with Joe, we might reach the end and still be saying, why? Ultimately, though, I think the reason we can face the future with confidence 
is Jesus did this for us. He actually rolled up his sleeves, came down, got involved in our suffering. He demonstrated in his own life. We can trust him. We can trust him, even if we don't know all the answers. Return to the story of Job. If you know the story, you know that in spite of all of his ranting and raving, he stayed true to God. In chapter 19, verse 25, in the midst of his pain, he declares, even through all of this, for I know that my Redeemer lives. But you know what? We know even better than Job. We know our Redeemer died. And because he died and went through that, we can surely trust him now. And when we know that personally, and it sinks in, we start living in the good of that truth, that reality, over time it will make us more and more unshakable in our faith. You know, more than anything else, this morning is an appeal for you to honestly examine your life. I want you to be honest about your faith. I want you to to look to see, if you dare, what fruit is producing in your life. Are you serving God consistently, even through suffering? Just to pause there for a moment. My experience of suffering, personally, is that when you're in the midst of it, you think you're not doing very well. And if, like Job, you're kind of shaking your fist a bit and getting frustrated and your relationship with God is just one of saying, why is this happening? I want you to remember the example of Job, that God vindicated him, honored him, blessed him, because through it all, he was clinging on by his fingernails. Just clinging on. And I want to say to you today, if, if there's pain, if there's difficulty, if there are questions, if there are suffering in your life, And if as a result of this message you're tempted to think, well, maybe I'm not a Christian because I'm finding this really hard. I want you to hear God's resounding well done to you today. Because you are here in this room right now when it would have been very easy for you not even to have come. The fact you are here, the fact you're listening right now, God say, well done. You are coming to him, not running from him. So don't allow your questions or your struggles in pain to cause you to think well my faith isn't genuine I want to encourage you to keep coming to God keep coming to him with your questions keep coming to this place this is a safe place for you to express and articulate all of that don't don't allow the well done of God to be robbed from you by the enemy you would want to lie and accuse you and say no you've failed if you're here today well done you're serving God consistently, even through suffering. Second, do you have a personal, personal, personal relationship with God? In some way, are you getting to know him intentionally, deliberately? And are you generous and bold with your giving? And if you're concerned, and maybe there isn't much of this fruit in your life, then the invitation is to get to know Jesus more. Press into him. Know his love for you. Receive his grace. 
Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And allow his presence to start changing you, start transforming you from the inside out.